Good heavens, it's a podcast. Welcome to episode 26. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Where the fuck have you been? And, you know, that is a very valid question. The last Bobcast uh, was the end of last year, and we are now almost in September of the following year, and finally I'm back up and running again. Look, there are a bunch of different reasons for it not happening, but I'm not going to bore you with those, you know? I think let's just focus on the positives here. Let's just focus on the main thing, and that is that, you know, we're back. I'm bringing you another episode with someone who I've wanted to talk to for uh, for this podcast for a while, so it's, I'm, I'm glad that this is the first cab off the rank. I hope, I, I can't promise that I'm going to be doing this every fortnight, which was the original plan. It's really hard uh, scheduling and finding a new person all the time and, and, and everybody's uh, different um, schedules and stuff. But I will just keep doing it sporadically as long as I'm having fun and you want to keep listening to it. Um, I'm Kevin Mitchell. You may also know me as Bob Evans or that guy with the nasally voice who sings for Jebediah. Uh, And this is my podcast. Uh, Good Evans, it's a Bobcast. Lots going on at the moment. I'm just going to quickly uh, run through some dates that I've got coming up. I'm going on tour. It's called the Full Circle Tour. I'm putting out a best of record called Full Circle. So it's in celebration of that. I'm playing at the Black Bear Lodge in Brisbane on Friday, October 19th. At Lead Belly in Sydney on Saturday, October the 20th. At the Gov in Adelaide on Friday, October the 26th. At the Rosemount Hotel in Perth on Saturday, 27th of October. And on the 3rd of November, finishing up in Melbourne at the Northcote Social Club. You can buy tickets at bobevans.com.au. All right, episode 26 is with... Someone I've known since I was a teenager, since we were both teenagers, I believe. His name is Paul Dempsey, and he is known as the uh, singer in Something of a Cape, but he's also very well known as a solo artist as well. Uh, yeah, we go way back. Uh, I mean, we talk about it a little bit in the podcast, but I I, I remember um, Jebediah and Something for Kate in the early years um of both of our bands formation we were signed to the same label we used to play a lot of gigs together something for kate came over to perth and played with us when we launched our very first record we did tours together we, we played together a lot and um you know he's somebody that i've always had a lot of admiration and respect for because he's obviously a very intelligent human being he is uh very gifted musically uh, as we talk about he's not <laughs> just a guitar player he pretty he's one of those guys that can kind of play any instrument that you put in front of him. Um, it's just interesting kind of talk, talking to him now as we are both now entering our 40s, having sort of gone through the last 20-odd years of being musicians and this has been our careers and our lives. and Yeah, it's kind of, it's a nice feeling to uh, reconnect, I guess, reconnect with somebody that you see as having sort of had a parallel, you know, a fairly parallel existence uh, in a lot of ways. And after we finished this podcast, I spent, I wish I talked for like an hour with Paul and his wife, Steph, also in Southern for Kate, uh, which was really lovely. I'm waffling now. Uh, <laughs> thanks a lot for listening. Uh, let's get into it, shall we? Uh, this is uh, episode number 26. My special guest, Paul Dempsey of Good Evans. It's a podcast.
Okay, welcome to the podcast. Good friends, Paul Dempsey. G'day, Kev. Thank you for doing this, and not only for agreeing to be on the on the podcast, but also uh, you've invited me to your home and you even bought me a cup of coffee. I feel like you uh, maybe like I'm not doing enough. I I'm, <laughs> I sh- I should be hosting more, and you're doing the hosting. So well, thank you for that. Southside south hospitality. <laughs> that's very kind of you. We're uh, sitting in. Uh, your home studios, yeah, and uh, surrounded by guitars. Uh, there's an amp that says Paul on it. Is, that that, was, is there actually a brand of amp called Paul? It is, yeah. Wow. It's a Canadian amp. And my friend um, Dave Wallace, who lives in Toronto, uh, he's one of my best friends. And my um, treat to myself on my 40th birthday oh, yeah. uh, was that I flew my friend Dave out here yeah, uh, to, to spend a week and, and be at my 40th birthday. Oh, wow. And uh, he turned up with that for oh, my me goodness. my birthday. So How does I, it sound? It's awesome. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I mean, for people in podcast land, it, it's a probably a late 60s little combo uh, valve amplifier. And uh, it's, yeah, it just sounds unreal. You, mm. you turn it up and it just fuzzes out. It's yeah. beautiful. How would you rate yourself as far as a gear nerd from in a scale of 1 to 10? 1 being, you know, what's a tuning pedal, and <laughs> 10 being I live, breathe gear? It depends. Like, yeah, I'm probably, I don't know, a 7 or an 8. Yeah, okay, that's up, that's up there. Yeah. I don't like, you know, I don't live and breathe it and think about it every day. I don't mm. like surf eBay constantly yes. looking okay. for yep. Um But, you know, I, I, I'm into guitars and pedals and stuff but in a i guess in a really utilitarian way like i know what i want yeah yeah i know what i'm looking for and and what i need to find to achieve it so i don't kind of just look around like such a massive part of the battle yeah i don't just like try things for the sake of it i actually couldn't be bothered sitting around with equipment and just noodling yeah i'm way more like i need a thing that does Does this right thing, and then i go and find it on the drive over here, I was thinking about uh, when how, you know when we first met, and I think that I can remember. I th- I think that I've got the memory of first meeting you, and it was in Sydney and leaving the lands down. Now I don't know what the gig. I don't think I was playing, and I don't think you were playing either. I think I don't know who was what the gig was, but. Leaving the Lansdowne in Sydney, crossing the road because it's right across the road from the Sydney University. You know, the, yep. that's the Lansdowne, right? That's the Lansdowne. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, with John O'Donnell and John O'Donnell introducing introducing us. So I reckon it would have been very shortly after Murmur signed Jebs. Mm. I think we were the next band that got signed after you after you in the lineage of uh, signings. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. About the signing, I have never been to the Lansdowne, so believe it or not. Do you think, um, so is this memory, have I made this up? <laughs> no, I think maybe it could have been the Annandale. Because oh, maybe it was the Annandale. I think. Because oh, in my memory I was going, where were we going? We were going somewhere and I thought, maybe we were going to the Annandale, but that's too far to walk. Was it after a home bake at Sydney Uni? Which is possible. Yeah. The other thing I can remember too... Is that we were both wearing corduroy <laughs> jeans. Yes. We, we both did do that, I remember, a lot. They were quite, yeah, cords were 
They yeah. were a thing. It was very Stephens 90s. To live in them too. <laughs> very um, 90s memory. I don't I'm can't remember the last time I wore a pair. But... What did we? Was it in the Murmur office? Did, is that where we? I don't know. Well, I, I mean, look, I could be wrong. That's just. Well, know. I remember that you know, obviously, very shortly or very soon after that, we went on the longest tour ever. The Unipal- right? Yes. So the Unipalooza tour of nineteen ninety six. I was thinking about that as well because I was eighteen years old. Yep. Yeah, I, uh, I was nineteen. You were a year older than me. Yeah. So or, no, maybe twenty. Ninety six was it? Oh, I was. I would have been turning twenty. I turned nineteen like about a month after that tour, coming home after that tour finished. Right. And that just seems so incredibly young to me now. Like eighteen. My God, I can't believe that. It's just because now if I went and saw like you know a bunch of bands and there were teenagers all through the band, like mm. I would just be like, oh, they're, they're kids. Yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> I know. And we were like, it was insane what we did. Really, when you think about it, mm. like. I mean, what was it, like 35 shows or something it like that? It must have been something like that. And stretching, we went up to North Queensland, didn't we? Yeah. And it was like, a, it was five shows a week. Yeah. For about six weeks or, mm. or even seven weeks, there might have been. I remember there was like a break in it somewhere. But I just remember that, you know, each band was kind of piled into their own van. Yeah. And Tarragos. your manager at the time, Heath, was That's right. managing the whole tour. He tour so he the was tour, the yeah. boss man and he would like hand everybody their 10 bucks. PDs, right. Day yeah, to, yeah. Which was literally all the money in the world that yeah, I yeah. had. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> at yeah. the time, it's like someone gave you 10 bucks to eat for the whole day and yeah, night. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, you know, it's breakfast. I don't remember breakfast ever really existing because, you know, I'm usually sleeping until yeah. midday. Um, and then, you know, evening time, you could usually eat for nothing if there was like some rider situations. Yep. Uh, I can't remember on that tour what there was, but there might have been something. Um, so, yeah, they, and, you know, 1996, $10 a day, you could, you could you do could, that. could yeah. survive. It went that. a bit further then. Yeah, that's true. Um, do yeah, you, that was a mental tour, though. Yeah, like I, I've got a few like specific memories of that tour. One of them, which, yeah, I've never forgotten. It was a bit of a, it was a, it was a bit of a learning experience. There was a gig that we turned up to. Now I'm pretty sure it was in Victoria. It might have been Ballarat or Bendigo or something like that. And um, basically, there was no one there. And, and um, I remember sort of, I mean, we should say Blue Bottle Kiss were also on this tour. Mm-hmm. Something forget you, but I Blue Bottle Kiss playing universities all around Australia. And we were out the front of the gig, and, and I think a few of us, myself included, um, was sort of calling into question, oh, should we do the gig? Like, what's the point? What's the point of the gig? And Jamie Hutchings of Blue Bottle Kiss, being the wise elder statesman of that very young group of uh, musicians, was kind of, after everyone was, quite a few people saying, oh, you know, let's not bother doing the gig. He was saying, no, I want to do the gig. I want to play. We came here to play. Yeah. Like, who cares? If there's only like five people in the crowd, yeah. and you know the PA only is only half working, and the, I come in to play a gig, I'm going to play, yeah. and all of a sudden everyone was like, "Yeah, yeah, we're going <laughs> to play the gig." And <laughs> well, the other thing too is that there were, you know, there were like a dozen of us just in the touring party. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we played to each other. Doubled. We doubled the audience. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget that because you know that it was a really that sort of tender age. Yeah, well, that was a real kind of piece of wisdom, you know. And I, and I I don't think from that point on, I don't think I'd ever turn up to a gig and thought we shouldn't play, even if there was no one there. 
Yeah, definitely. You, you turn up and play. And and yeah, like if there's if there's not many people there or if there's no one there, it's rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also that idea of like, you know, if if you're playing to thousands of people or hundreds of people or five people, like you still, you play to them. You yeah. play to the people that are there and you give them Yeah, exactly. You, everything they eat. That's right. Yeah, because um, yeah, that one person paid for their ticket, mm. you know, so you don't, you, you can't say to them, yeah, sorry, we're yeah. not into it. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just, it's not good enough. Yeah. We, um, something for Kate, uh, in the uh, late 90s or whatever, we were touring in the States and we played this weird gig in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, it was a festival and it was called the Great American Rib Roast, <laughs> something like that. It was like one of those, you know, mid Midwest yeah. festivals where, you know, it's all about barbecued ribs and sports and there's yeah. some bands playing and blah, <laughs> yeah. blah, blah. Anyway, we, for some reason, were doing this gig and we were like the first band on. We played at like one o'clock in the afternoon yeah, yeah. and we were in this like arena. Okay. Sort of out, it looked like a sort of rodeo right. arena or something. Okay, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, you know, we get... Were there any hay bales anywhere? No, <laughs> no, but it was that kind of low, you know, those low-tiered... Yeah. So anyway, okay. we get on stage and we're playing. There is literally one person <laughs> right up the front, right against the railing. Right. Watched our whole, like we played our whole set. You know, we were making wisecracks on stage, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. But we played and we played, you know, we, we gave it everything and we mm. had fun. I mean, it was the first time we'd ever been to Cleveland. So yeah, I was yeah, like, absolutely. Oh, you know, we're going to have a great time. So, we, you know, we played, we did our thing. Uh, and that one person watched us, um, mm. <laughs> who we referred to as our audience. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, so, and then we got talking to them afterwards because, you know, as it was you funny. Yeah. And you've only got, you know, <laughs> one person watching you. You do often yeah. strike up conversation after That's the show. It. Yeah, it's like you finish a song. And it's like, yeah, what did yeah, you think? How you going? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the funny thing is that that person, like, as I said, that was in the late 90s, that person has like bought everything we've put out, like bought yeah. every record, followed us like ever since then. Yeah, wow. And I've been back through Cleveland a few times since as a, in my solo thing. Yeah. And that guy has been at every show no and still talks about it's that amazing. day. And, yeah. yeah. So it's like, you know, yeah. it matters. It always yeah. matters. Yeah. That's a, yeah, I think that stuff's important. I can remember the first time going playing overseas with Jebs and that was about probably about 99 maybe we first started going to North America and I remember at that time um that whole idea of sort of you know going to another country and starting again and quite a lot of bands talking about how how difficult that transition was for them um to the point where for a lot of bands it was too much for for the band to kind of um survive or through mm. but I kind of remember that that experience being a, a bit of a relief because it was like they didn't feel like there was as much pressure. I mean, mm. I think like at that time because Jibbo had started getting popular so quickly, and that pressure happened really fast. Mm. Going overseas and going back to a pub and playing to like twenty people in a pub was like ah, oh. yeah. It was kind of like a bit of a weight lifted, and um, I don't know if that's a uh, reflection of my lack of <laughs> <laughs> my lack of. Um, ambition or not but uh... <laughs> uh yeah see i'm the opposite i i find playing to five people way more intense mm. and high pressure mm. 
I guess when when a crowd gets big enough, and again, I'm not saying that you know it doesn't matter. It mm. always matters, but at a certain point, you can't look at hundreds of yes. people. They yeah, yeah. they're no longer individuals. Yeah, it, just becomes it becomes like a, a crowd, a mass, and yeah. at that point, I just can let go, get lost in what I'm doing, and mm. not. But when it's you know. 15 people it's it feels like 15 sets of eyes yeah uh so it's a whole different thing yeah. and that's when i feel more yeah like yeah. I'm, I'm on yeah you know and i kind of like that as well i like i you know i moved to new york in 2010 and lived there for a couple of years and i was just touring around the states constantly just by myself with my acoustic guitar yeah. and, and playing these you know small clubs and all kinds of different shows but you know mostly like small clubs yeah. to you know anywhere from i don't know like 30 to a couple of hundred people mm. um and i really that was a massive learning curve especially after already having been a live performer for 15 years yeah i felt like i just suddenly discovered something and, right. and kind of had some kind of breakthrough and ever since that time in new york and, and just touring around the states doing those little solo shows i just feel like i found another gear what was um, it it was just that intense thing of being having to prove yourself because you know you're also playing to a lot of crowds who don't know anything about mm. you. you you can't you know you can't walk in there with any um that you know you're a new Reputation you're brand new of, yeah. every every show you do is your first gig mm. Uh, mm. and that's that's how it felt i felt like i was like getting on stage for the first time playing my first gig every yeah, yeah. time and that just um you know it gives you a whole other um just a whole other rush of, mm. of energy. And like I said, especially after having already done it for 15 years, for everything to suddenly become new again yeah, um, was a, just a really wonderful thing. Yeah. And it's just given me, I don't know, I just learned so much from that. And now, I don't know, I just love every gig. It doesn't mm. matter where it is. Uh, I love playing. And, and I don't, um, this isn't intended the way it's going to sound, but like I don't, have bad shows anymore i don't yeah. mean that from what the yeah, audience no, I thinks i just mean yeah. personally i never ever spend any time on stage anymore worrying yeah. or feeling like i'm not having a good time like yeah, I, yeah. I just if there's issues or problems or technical difficulties or whatever i can just right, laugh right through, through it or yeah, make yeah. a joke and keep on having fun mm. and i never used to be able to do that no. before i used to get really thrown yeah, I used to yeah. get really easily thrown by things. I mean, you mm. probably remember, you know, on that Unipalooza tour, we used to just, you know, we used to crack the shits on stage <laughs> sometimes, if, you know, um, because you just, you don't know, yeah, everything's so intense and you, you don't mm. have the experience yet. Yeah. But yeah, now it's just like, I, I can honestly look forward to every gig and get mm. on stage and whatever happens, I know it's going to be fine and mm. I'm going to find a way to have fun. Yeah, yeah. We played a gig in Adelaide. Um, something for Kate last November and the power went out and the entire PA crashed and no yeah. sound and yeah. you know there we are on stage with our electric guitars and just nothing <laughs> it's like I didn't even think twice I just grabbed my acoustic guitar and marched out into the middle of the crowd yeah, and stood yeah. on a stool and just started playing and it yeah, was yeah. It just it was awesome and it just made the show go to a whole totally. level yeah yeah and then when we got the power back on it was like all right here we go back and into it yeah just, you know you just that's another interesting, you know, aspect of live performance that I think comes that you learn with experience too is that, like, it's the un, it's those unexpected things that often make the shows yeah special. 
Like totally. they're the and and obviously how you react to those things, of course, is is a major part of it. But um, yeah, things like power going out or just like random things that you you would never um plan for mm. that happen can often take the gig from being you know just a regular good gig to being like special, memorable, you yeah. know, funny and yeah. And I think it's you know it's those moments as well that can really kind of prove the difference. Uh, you know, because some people handle it yeah. in a cool way and some people can yeah. handle it in a really bad way. And, yeah. Um, you know, so, but yeah, you can only, you only sort of learn it from going from through it. From doing it. And like over I said, the number of times over. I cracked the shits on stage and had a terrible show afterwards, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, um, that's, uh, I've been there. Yeah, you know, Dr. Phil would say, so how's that working for you, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's go back to... Um, when you first, well, what are, what are your earliest memories of getting into music? Because uh, you you come from a musical family, don't you? I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. My mother was a professional singer, um, and um, my here we go. Oh, I'm reaching back to Look some vinyl. That. Look at this. Okay. Well, Paul's just handed me a vinyl. It's called "A Touch of Ireland" from. You're going to have to pronounce that. Uh, Bunratty Castle, Australia, which was a um, a Irish club that my mother and her husband ran in in the eighties. No 80s. way! And my mum and her sister uh, had a band that played there every night. It was like you know something like two hundred and fifty shows a year oh my for nearly goodness. ten years. And this picture, that's that's the inside. <gasps> yeah. Wow. Um, it looks if, like um, yeah. I mean, just for people listening it 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 looks like um a ye olde um it's like medieval <laughs> it does Ireland. medieval yes. yes um but they sang uh mum if you flip it over you'll see uh there's mum there oh okay yep uh, and, is it gillian um, or gillian gillian, gillian dempsey a mezzo soprano mezzo, mezzo soprano yeah 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 so yeah they they, they Performed there every night and um, with an amazing band, and, and it was mostly like Gaelic folk music. Wow! Singing in Gaelic, and so she did that, and she also she did some training uh, as an opera singer. Um, my grandmother, grandparents, also musical. Uh, dad was musical. Um, my sisters are all singers, songwriters. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my earliest memories basically are that all the people you see on the back of that record cover, uh, you know, when I was a little, little kid, I would, you know, come out of my room and more often than not, all those people were sleeping on the couches or, <laughs> or you know, late at night would come home after the shows and they'd all, you know, stay up drinking and drinking, playing yeah, music and actually yeah. like playing live music in our living room and you know i remember often being pulled out of bed in the middle of the night to come out in the lounge room and sit down and watch and, <laughs> um, any so, songs on this record uh, bring back any <laughs> special uh, memories yeah i mean I, I i mean a lot of them are the gaelic titles that i can barely pronounce but i you know i know the um the melodies the ones that mum sings and yeah um yeah no they're all classics but um yeah so very early yeah um yeah as i say like for, for as long as i can remember there's just been people playing instruments in the house and wow. singing and as i say i've got three older sisters and i just remember 
growing up, someone was always singing yeah, in the house, yeah, yeah. and yeah. then someone would chime in from another room with a harmony. Oh my goodness! And there'd yeah. be like just three-part harmonies yeah. coming from all ends of the house. And yeah. So, did a um, family band ever form at any point? <laughs> um, oh, I mean, like whenever we get together for any you know occasions, um, the, the instruments always come out and we all sing yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in an official way, um, my sisters have sung. They sang backing vocals on on uh, the astronaut something for Kate song. Okay, yeah. Um, and I've played drums in my sister Louise's band. Yeah. Louise has joined us on stage. Moira, Louise and Moira have both joined Something for Kate on stage once yeah. or twice to sing backing vocals. Yeah. So. And were there, so there were instruments always around the house? Yeah. Uh, my grandmother, there, there was a piano. Um, my sister Moira was, is, is a great piano player. And um, so there was always a piano my grandmother played as well. So I remember, you know, as soon as I could reach the keys, I started sort of bashing on that. And, then, and that was the first instrument that you... Yeah. 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 yeah, I think piano... You know, like friends are always saying to me, like, oh, you know, my kid wants to learn an instrument. What should we start with? And I, I always say piano because mm. um, in terms of dexterity, it's just it's all laid out flat in front of you. Yep. You do yep. the same thing with both hands. It doesn't require mm. two different kinds of coordination yeah. like guitar does. Yeah. Um, and it's linear, you know. The low notes start down there and the, yeah. the more you go to the right, the higher they get. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of, it's it's easy. Yeah, um, it's intuitive, and so I was able to start. Like I said, as soon as I started reaching the keys, I just tried started trying to copy whatever I heard my sister doing or my mm. grandmother doing, and then yeah, I picked up the guitar when I was about eight. Right. Okay. Um, but again, like I said, that you've got to do two different things with either hand, so mm. it's trickier in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've always thought that about the piano. I mean, I'm not an accomplished player by any stretch. But yeah, I, I, there is. It, it makes sense just seeing all the notes laid out in front of you, as opposed to you know the guitar neck where yeah the, you're sort of looking over it and yeah, around it to yeah. see what you're doing. And and yeah. again, it's not intuitive. Yeah, it's a, it's a graph. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I always look at the guitar neck like a sort of graph mm. with coordinates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whereas yeah, the piano is just yeah, it's flat. It's you know, it's like a xylophone. Just yeah, doink, yeah, doink, doink, doink. Yeah, you know. Um, sorry to all the you know <laughs> excellent, sophisticated, world class pianists out there. I'm I'm not one of those, but you know it's just a yeah, it's a much more intuitive mm. instrument. So. And what about um, going from playing the guitar at eight to getting into rock and roll and st- meeting Clint and how yeah. did all that come about? Um, high school. Yeah, well, I started playing in bands when I was about eleven. I played my first gig in a band, you know, in front of people when I was 11. Really? Um, Where was the key? It was a, I was in um, grade six, so it was at our school kind of okay, yeah, yeah. break-up party. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so me and a few friends played some covers. I think what we played play? we played a couple of Kinks songs. Oh, yeah. And I think we played a Zeppelin song. Oh, wow, and, um, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, because the Kinks there, that's a, they're... Be good songs for like little kids to play because you know not again not not to uh, disparage the Kinks but there's a certain simplicity to yeah those songs but not Led Zeppelin. Oh uh, well, it was the Zeppelin song was Good Times Bad Times, which okay, which you know, I'm really bad with Zeppelin. Uh, um, well, it's actually a bit of a tricky riff. It's tricky on the drums for sure, but yeah. uh, you know we we 
blundered through that. Yeah. And I think we might have done a I think we might have done Sweet Child of Mine as well. Yeah, it was like a four or five song. Set. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, so then it was just you know high school bands, mostly metal bands. That's what I was into yeah, yeah. at the time. Do you remember um, how it felt to perform on stage that those first few times? Um, yeah, I remember you know being very nervous, and and I remember my hands shaking. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean mostly just concentrating really intensely yeah. and and wondering why everything sounded so terrible. We you know we didn't know how to. Yeah. We didn't know how to set our amplifiers oh, or dude. do anything. Yeah. And... That, that was like me on Unipalooza tour. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I just I just knew that I wanted to do that though. Yeah. You know, and like I said, I mean, I grew up watching yeah. my mother do that, and yeah. Um, so it it seemed natural, yeah. but yeah. scary as well. Yeah. And then yeah, I kind of went through a whole lot of different. Mostly metal bands, but also like switching between guitar and drums. I think I played drums mm. in more bands than really? guitar as a teenager. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I could have very easily ended up a drummer. Uh, you know, I loved the guitar, and and then you know through high school, I guess about midway through high school, my love of metal sort of uh, evolved okay. into more like noise punk, yeah, right, alternative, you know, stuff. So, what are some what are some of the metal bands that you're into, and what are some of the uh... What were some of the bands that you progressed onto? Well, as a kid, it was like, you know, Iron Maiden and, right. and Metallica and yeah. Megadeth and Slayer, Anthrax, yeah. Exodus. Yeah. The, These are they're all, yeah, all, all bands I'm very familiar with, but never got into myself at that age. I mean, yeah. always the thing with Iron Maiden that always stands out is just the artwork of those albums. They yeah. Always just like nothing else. That's what got me. You yeah. Know? I mean, I, I, I was. <clears throat> I was probably nine or ten years old uh, when Seventh Son of a Seventh Son came out. Yeah, and yeah. I walked past a record store and I saw the poster hanging in the window and I just bought the album. Yeah, I just had yeah, yeah. to know it's, it's, what it sounded like yeah. and then I was just hooked. It's the visual thing. It's like Kiss. You know, like we as kids, we were really into Kiss. But it was just because we got hooked on the visual, you know, the mark, like yeah. the face painting and all that. Cause of, does that I made this album have the song, uh, Can I Play With Madness? Yep. I can't yep. believe that that's, that is like the only Iron Maiden record <laughs> that ever, I can never remember entering our house. Brett uh, bought it home. Right. Um, I think it was on vinyl. I've maybe got, I've got just... the seven-inch vinyl <laughs> single in that cupboard. Yeah, maybe it's just borrowing it or something. But yes, I remember that song. That's probably the only Iron Maiden song I could name. Oh man, I like I got obsessed <laughs> after that, and I just I went and got every one of their records, and their double live album, Live After Death, was <laughs> I was just obsessed with it, and I pretty much that really was a massive part of me teaching myself guitar and bass and drums. Right, I pretty much just learnt yeah. how to play every note and every beat yeah, yeah. on that record. I was just wow. so into it. So I used to, you know, I used to air drum along to it. But when I say air drum, I mean like, properly, you know, yeah, <laughs> like I was paying close attention to every kick yeah, drum and every yeah. snare hit and every little, you know, triplet on the ride cymbal. Wow. And, and then when I actually sat down in front of a drum kit, I could just, I yeah. just did it. It was like, yeah. there, there it is, you know, because I actually, you know, was kind of paying attention to which drums were being hit at which times. Yeah. And yeah, see, at that, that age, when I was listening to music, I wasn't even, 
it took me ages to figure out how I, how bands were able to sound the way they did when you know like things like you know I didn't learn about like you know the bass notes happening at the same time as the kick drum until like <laughs> I was seriously until I was about 18 you know like yeah and then when you find that out it's like ah so that's how they make it sound like that it's it's funny you know like the things you figure out like I I think I've always had a pretty good sense of like how things work songs work yeah um but you know other things like how to plug in your effects pedals in the right order yes yeah, yeah. like is a relatively recent development yeah, for yeah. me like i used to just plug things in and go whatever and yeah. then wonder why it, things didn't sound right i feel like yeah. i've just figured out how to make guitars sound better. yeah yeah uh there's so much stuff that seems obvious yeah but it's not and then someone yeah. tells you about it and you go oh yeah, yeah. that's better yeah yeah it's a, yeah it's constant i'm still i've just only just in the last few months discovered um chorus as a guitar effect it's like yeah. i've always known about it but i've always thought ah what what can i do with this i can't do anything with this this effect but all of a sudden i've like realized how to make a chorus and a reverb together sound like the smiths yes. and i'm like this yeah. is the best thing in the world yeah exactly <laughs> I don't, that's yeah it is it's a breakthrough yeah so that yeah it was like went from metal to kind of noisy punk angry music yeah like what sort of stuff oh uh, like you know fugazi uh sonic youth black flag the yeah. descendants i remember you were um, into fugazi when in the, the unipalooza era i remember yeah well that was about fugazi a bit yeah, definitely. Oh, look, they're still like, you know, absolutely up there for me. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because like, because of the metal thing, I taught myself to, how to like play really technically mm. well and how to shred and do all yeah. that stuff. So I was like a real guitar-y guitarist. Yeah. Um, so I could do all that stuff. And then when I heard like Sonic Youth and Fugazi and Black Flag, I just rejected all of it. And and I just started to appreciate that it's not a um, competition sport mm. and it doesn't mm. matter how technically proficient you are, that really it's the power of ideas mm. that make great music mm. and you don't have to be a, a, a wizard mm. you, if you've got uh, a strong emotion and a strong idea and a strong yeah. intent, yeah. then you can make the greatest music and, you know, that's the important thing. So. Yeah. Yeah, I sort of completely rejected the showy musicianship yeah. in favour of this, um, you know, just trying to really get some raw emotion mm. across. And it, and it, ultimately, that's a lot more enjoyable to me as well. Mm. It's a lot more cathartic. And I think it connects you with people much more than, you know, um, showing off, standing yeah. out there showing off how, yeah, yeah. how great you can play. Yeah. Um, so that was like a revelation to me. Like I, I st don't get me wrong, I still love like metal stuff, and I still listen to all that stuff, and I still love watching Iron Maiden. But the response is more of a wow, yeah, like yeah. wow, look yeah, at him yeah, go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, when I listen to other music, it's more like it gets you in the gut, and, yeah, and you yeah. feel it, it triggers emotions. Yes. So Iron Maiden don't trigger emotions, no. yeah, for yeah. Me. Um, it's just more just entertainment. Yeah, yeah, it's just fun. Yeah, yeah, you know. But yeah, other other stuff like really hits you emotionally, and I think yeah. that's, you know, different. I'm not going to say it's better or whatever. It's different, but yeah. it appeals to me more. Um, so, what about meeting uh, Clint and and something? How did something for Kate sort of 
form. I know you probably had to tell this story a million times before. No, that's that's cool. Um, so yeah, I was um, I I moved around a lot as a kid. I went to like ten different schools. Um, How come? Uh, mum was a bit nomadic. Mm. Um, my parents migrated uh, here from Ireland mm. um, with my sisters, um, and I think they just wanted to keep seeing different parts of Australia. Well, my, yeah. my, my, my dad died when I was a kid, um, so mum remarried and, you know, I think she just wanted to see, wanted to check out other places, yeah, yeah. try other places. Yeah. You know, she just never really settled anywhere. Yeah. So, so uh, um, around Victoria or? Uh, Queensland as well. Okay, yeah. Um, and, yeah, all around Victoria. And by the time I met Clint, I was... I started school down on the Mornington Peninsula mm. at Padua College and... They had two campuses, and then in, in year 11, Clint started attending the same campus as me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we wore a uniform and everything, and I think one day he could see through my school shirt that right. I was wearing a Descendants T-shirt right, under yeah. my school shirt. And yeah. so that was immediately grounds to okay. strike up a conversation. Because, yeah. yeah, yeah. you know, this is... You sound so old. It's really not that long ago. There was no internet. Yeah. So finding like-minded people, especially in a rural place as Mornington was then, yeah. finding someone else who had even heard mm. of the Descendants was, you know, it was like meeting, you know, another person yeah. in outer space. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you just immediately were friends. Mm. Like, and, and then we immediately just started trading tapes and I introduced yeah. him to Superchunk and he introduced me to Bad Religion and we just, you know, we just... Got just talked about music nonstop, became friends, and then it was like he played drums, so we started jamming. Um, yeah, that was it. We just kind of became best buddies in high school. And were you going to all ages shows at this time? Yeah, well? in in year eleven and twelve, we started. Yeah, like catching two buses and a train, and yeah. you know, like a two and a half hour yeah commute from Mornington uh, to get to like the Central Club or the Hi Fi Bar or whatever, and, yeah, and see. Um, you know, we'd go and see Magic Dirt, yeah. Spider Bait or UMI, yeah. uh, Scream Feeder, yeah. um, The Meanies, yeah. you know, heaps heaps of awesome bands. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember the moment. We, we'd been jamming and, you know, I had been playing in a few different bands, trying to find something that felt right. Mm. And it was like just after leaving, just after finishing school, um, I moved, I moved straight up to the city. I actually moved up to the city before the end of year 12 and like slept on Clint's floor yeah, uh, right. to finish year 12. And then I met a bass player, Julian, through an ad in a record store and okay. we got together and started jamming. And, and it, we were clicking, you know, we, and we started writing songs and we just, we tried out a bunch of different drummers. Clint, you know, at that time didn't feel, you know, like he wasn't a serious, uh, very serious about the drums. So right, we, okay. we were... You know, so even though he and I were best friends and going to shows together, it sort of we hadn't considered him playing yeah, drums. Right. So we had all these other drummers, and it, but it, nothing was really clicking. And then he and I went and saw a band one night, and we were just watching them, and we kind of just looked at each other and went, "Like we can do this." Yeah, yeah. Like we, so we started jamming together, and only a couple of months later, we played our first gig. Yeah, Clint and Julian and myself and. Like a year later, we were on tour with you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go into that like knowing what, like, with an idea of the kind of noise you wanted to make, or the kind, or was it, was it just you guys kind of kind of clicked and then and that 
just kind of happened. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Julian and I were writing songs, so we didn't have a vision yeah. for it. Like mm. we weren't like, oh, we want to sound like this. Yeah, we yeah. were just doing what yeah. felt good and what came naturally. You know, we've been. I've known Clint longer than anyone outside of my immediate family. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, we just you know. We're like brothers and we're really so different in so many ways, but mm. I guess so are many siblings. You know, it's just that kind of relationship where, yeah, yeah you just know each other. Yeah. Mm. Let's uh, fast forward because I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your the New York years. I mean, you mentioned mm. a little bit before that, um, you know, you moved, pretty well moved. You were there sort of permanently um, yep. in 2010. What what led to that? What what led to the making that move? And because that was putting something for Kate kind of on hold at that time as well. Yeah. Well. Um, so first of all, I mean, Steph and I just love New York. Always have, and mm. and we had spent a lot of time there. I mean, between like ninety seven and two thousand ten, we were there for some period of time every year, mm. you know, or sometimes a couple of times a year. We yeah. we just loved it there. We had a lot of good friends there. Mm. And so we kind of knew that, you know, at some point we would love to actually mm. be based there for yeah. some period of time. Yeah. Um, and in 2008, Something for Kate, we had done five albums in a row. Mm. It seemed like we had been, you know, for almost 15 years we had pretty much just constantly mm. been writing recording touring writing recording touring and mm. um and we had made done five albums and it, it was sort of like you know we sort of came to a natural point where we had finished our record contract we mm. delivered like all our five albums for that contract so that was up we changed management at mm. the same time and there were just all these kind of natural events. And, and Clint and Steph just said to me, you know, it's really time you made a solo record. Mm. I think we all kind of knew that I would do that at some point. Just because I do play lots of instruments, they had always joked to me, like, one day you just need to make a record where you play everything. Yeah, yeah. You, get to have, you get to have everything <laughs> your way and you get to do everything yeah. exactly the way you would play it. You mm. know? Um, and that just seemed like the time. And... At the same time, um, you know, Clint wanted, you know, he had always talked about wanting to open a bar and, and mm. you know, uh, that was just something he was passionate about as well. So he did that. And suddenly there was just this natural thing where it was like, okay, I'm making a solo album. Um, you know, Steph and I are a married couple. I think people know that. So kind of everything we do yeah, is together. together yeah. um, so it was really like, you know, we are like a family, the three of us. So it was really like, Steph and I felt like, well, Clint is going to be okay. He's, you know, <laughs> it's like, like yeah. we don't have to, if something for Kate aren't active, yeah, yeah. Clint's got this, he's opened a bar now. So yeah. he's got, he's cool. The child is okay. Well, I, but you know, like you do, <laughs> no, we, no, the three like, of us have always made decisions, uh, you know, in consideration of totally. all of our welfare. Yeah, it's like a know. family, yeah. So it was like, okay, well, Clint's doing something mm. and he's cool. Uh, I'm doing a solo record. Um, Steph, you know, was doing art and photography and some other stuff. So we were just in a position where it was like, okay, well, mm. we're kind of, we don't have to be 
in Australia now. Mm. Um, and I had a solo record to promote, so mm. seemed like as good a time as any. And we we you know packed everything up and moved to New York, and mm. it was sort of open ended. We were like, you know, could be forever, could be yeah. for a few months. Yeah, um, it ended up being nearly two years. Yeah, and my record came out in the states, and I just toured and toured and toured, yeah. and then you know we ended up. Um, having our son over there. Yeah. Yeah. And then, we, you know, we came back when it just, again, naturally felt like time to make us something for Kate record. All yeah. like all three of us were just, again, like, let's, let's yeah. do that now. Yeah. Um, we were talking earlier, um, and we'll get to um, talking about songs soon. But yeah, we were talking earlier about uh, the, the juggle of uh, having kids and continuing the music thing. How do you go about sort of writing and working at home? Now that you know you've got kids and stuff like the um yeah I yeah pretty much every day I'm I'm up here in my room for about five hours yeah um while the kids are you know at school or whatever and then at night later on I might come back up here for another couple of hours mm. um and it's really just but I've I've always been like that and something for Kate's mm. always been like that we have always had a routine about. Right working on stuff and i i don't know it it just works for us i Mm. I know some people feel like um you can't force creativity and they're Mm. right you can't but you can um stand around at the landing pad for the same hours every day in case something comes into land yeah if you're if you're not there yeah you know you've got to create space just you've just for the the chance Mm. that 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 you might catch something yeah when i was younger i definitely absolutely subscribed to the idea that um yeah you can't force inspirational creativity you know you've just got to be lucky and 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 i had very much that attitude of like because you know i didn't really understand what i was doing or you know how it all worked and so i guess that's a very easy kind of um philosophy to kind of grab hold hold of but yeah i certainly don't feel that way anymore and and obviously part of that is has been through necessity you know learning to kind of go okay i've got you know this four hour window here where i can work and you know having a space set up and yeah you know getting a cup of coffee and going to work so to speak and and yeah like and also sort of working through that thing of like sometimes you can work for hours and just kind of come up with shit that you're not gonna ever do anything with but i definitely come to realize that uh all the shit songs or the crap that you do is still part of a greater process that leads you to something good and if and when you do get to the good song then you know that like oh okay well those crap songs are worth it because if i didn't go through those i wouldn't have arrived here exactly you have to crawl through a mountain of shit before you get to the good stuff (laughs) um and you know it's the it's the old classic, you know, 99% perspiration. But, yeah. you know, it turns out that it's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like like all cliches, it is true. And yeah. I actually, um, I just wanted to say as well, like we even before we had kids and all that stuff, like we've been doing this for since like our second album. So in about yeah. 1999, you know, got a, we started just going to a rehearsal space five yeah. days a week. Wow. And that's what... Me, Clint, and Steph did wow. for you know over a decade. We went to a rehearsal space five days a week. You know when we were making stuff, when we weren't away on tour. That's yeah. what we did. Yeah, I, I don't feel like you know we were like forcing creativity, no. but we were just making sure that we were in a space where 
you know, whatever. I mean, half the time Clinton Steph would sit on the floor playing Uno uh, <laughs> while I was noodling around yeah, with something. Yeah. And, you know, we were just there. Mm. And when things happened, we were there to catch it. Because I actually, I don't believe in such a thing as inspiration. I just don't buy it. Mm. I don't think it exists. I think that um, when great ideas come or when you get some kind of flash, it it's not out of a vacuum. It doesn't mm. just appear out of a void. It's just something coalescing that has probably been slowly assembling itself in the yeah, back of your yeah. head. And through all that shit where you're working day after day and you feel like it's all crap, I actually think that that is valuable brain exercise. Mm. It's like you're massaging parts mm. of your psyche or whatever. Mm. And then at some point, something goes, oh, blah, there's a song. Wow, yeah, I yeah. wrote that in five minutes. No, yeah, you nah, didn't. Yeah, you yeah. didn't. You wrote yeah. it in three months. Yeah, yeah. Or three just, years. <laughs> yeah, it's just that in five minutes, the pieces fell into yeah. place. And if you hadn't have done all of that shit before, yeah. it wouldn't. It doesn't appear out of nowhere. I don't believe in magic. Yeah. And again, I think this whole... People talk about inspiration or like flashes, that like the term flashes of inspiration. Yeah, yeah. I just don't buy it. Yeah. Um, it's magical thinking. Yeah. And I, you know, um, obviously, you know, there's a different uh, connotation as well, like to be inspired by mm, something and mm. that's all fair and good, you know, mm. you hear. But inspiring just means, you know, something motivates you or, mm. or gives you a burst of energy because yeah, you think, loved something, yeah. you reacted strongly to something. Yeah. But it doesn't hand you a, no. a result. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. only comes from mm. sustained effort. Mm. You know, like yesterday, I, I, I wrote a, a whole song, bang, there it is. Uh, you know, wasn't there before, but bang, there it is. But it wasn't bang. It's yeah, yeah. made up of things that I know yeah. have been floating around various parts of my brain. When you're younger, I think the idea of like, you know, inspiration and the stuff and and things just kind of being falling out of the sky and the the mysticalness of it all. Yeah. I think that kind of there's something kind of appealing about that when you're younger. There's like just that concept or that idea, you know, oh it's so you know, I'm tuned into some magical it's thing. It's romantic. And it, it is romantic, you yeah. know, and, and you can see why when you you know And 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 yeah, like it's and it's a romantic it's, and it's the romance of the genius. Yeah, yeah. Who somehow <laughs> yeah. This yeah. person is somehow attuned to yes. things that the rest of us are. That's aren't. right. It's, yeah, like, yeah. it's not true. Yeah, yeah. There's just I. There's no truth to it. Yeah. Ideas take a lot of thought. Well, let's talk songs now. Normally uh, on this podcast, well, actually, no, I shouldn't say normally because a lot of the time people uh, don't have uh, an iTunes most played twenty five list, and and uh, you're one of those people. Now I've asked you just to choose three songs that uh, we can have a little listen to and um, and have a chat about. So what do you want to, which one do you want to do first? Well, there was a David Bowie one. Let's start with that, just because I can, I have already noticed some uh, David Bowie uh, things in this room, but uh, well, let's, oh, yeah. let's do the, let's, uh, what's, what's the song first? Uh, it's I Am A DJ. Feel like 
I reckon, yeah, it'd be around 1980, yeah. I think. I don't know yeah. exactly. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's on Lodger. Yeah, it's... um, I picked that just because, you know, you were asking about most played yeah. songs. And that I reckon I hear that song 50 times a week. Really? Thanks to our kids. And really? Yeah, um, right. That's they, funny. They're That's... obsessed with it. Which I find interesting because it's certainly not one of his more well-known no. songs. Um, it was a single, but, you know, it would be one of his more obscure singles yes. for sure. And yeah. it's a, quite a strange song. It's a yeah. really... It's one of those songs that feels very much... Uh, like it was invented on the spot in the yeah. studio, and which it was yeah. in large part. It's um, he made that album with um, Brian Eno, and I've been lucky enough to be doing some Bowie shows, like singing yes. Bowie songs with yes. um, with some about. of his band members. And Adrian Bellew, uh, the guitarist who played on uh, Lodger, he played on this song, and he told me how he and Robert Fripp. Um, also, you know, I'm sure people know who Robert Fripp is, but um, they both got, yeah, got this call, come to Switzerland, and they turned up in the studio. Well, Adrian Adrian says actually that they literally landed and were supposed to just not be in the studio till the morning, but yeah. he was like, oh, what the hell, I'll go by the studio and see what they're doing. And um, they set up a guitar and an amp and, and they said, okay, put the headphones on, um, you're just start playing, and he, he hadn't heard anything. They didn't. Play, they didn't play them anything. Yeah, yeah. They just said, "Just play." Like you'll hear a count in. Oh my didn't even tell them what key it was in. Oh my god! Just you'll. But that's you'll hear brilliant. It. I mean, just hearing that uh, makes me yeah get excited. Like oh, I'm, yeah. exactly yeah. So it was like you'll hear a count in, and then just play, uh, and you'll get two goes oh at each god. song. And it's I think so he, cool. I think he said he ended up doing most of it just that night. You know, my goodness. Um, and then they did the same thing to Fripp, like just two goes. And that's so all the guitar uh, you hear is, is, you know, that kind of on the spot stuff. Yeah. And I'm a DJ has just the, the weirdest, most yeah. amazing, strange guitar. And it's so, you know, atonal and discordant and chaotic. Yeah. And it works. And my kids just love it. are obsessed yeah. with it that's so funny that yeah it's kid related because a lot of the time people's most played songs that have kids are often you know children's <laughs> songs and stuff like that yeah. um but you you but you're a massive bowie fan right i mean yeah you're yeah. across all of his stuff and you you guys something for supported him we did yeah. so you got to meet him yeah um yeah we did the um his well what ended up being his last world tour we we did hmm. um like we were like two and a half weeks. And that's a photo. Yeah. There's a photo up on uh, one of Paul's uh, monitor speakers in the studio here. Of the three. I'm short-sighted, but I can make out the three members of Something Forgated, David Bowie. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was obviously a, a real highlight doing that tour. And yeah, in the last year I've been... Um, Singing, singing stuff with his um, a bunch of his band. Yeah. Members. So how did that come about? Be- well, they like you know after he um, after he died, they you know they did they didn't do anything. You know they were all obviously hit hard by it, and mm. 
Um, it wasn't until a year later that Gary Oldman, actually, who was really close friends with Bowie, mm. uh, I think, was the one who wanted to do something on the one-year anniversary. Right. Uh, and it, it would, would have also been his 70th birthday. Yeah, so right. I think um, he kind of had the idea of wanting to put on a, a show to celebrate you know his his life and his music and you know not a tribute show mm. but a, a celebration mm-hmm. um and um so this thing called celebrating david bowie happened in um new york la london tokyo and sydney and obviously they invited guest singers to come and yeah. do their renditions of favorite bowie songs and when they came to sydney and they you know picked people up in each location each place, so yeah. so when they wanted to come to sydney um they contacted me um because we you know had maintained a relationship with some of them mike garson his piano player ended up after the bowie tour we did he ended up playing on the next something for kato yeah, right. after that and and you know he came and saw me play in la yeah right um so there was a, a bit of a relationship there yeah. and and a guy called eric gorfain who was playing uh string playing violin with celebrating David Bowie had also done strings on something for Kate stuff. Yeah, so right. Cool. They kind of just called me up and went, yeah. "Hey, you know, we want to come to Sydney. Would you be interested in singing a couple of songs?" And you know, anyone else down there, you know that you know. You think <laughs> would be- <laughs> I was like, "Sure." So I called up Sarah Blasco and yeah. Bernard Fanning and yeah. um, and Chris Cheney, and and they all came and sang as well. <laughs> was that the Opera House? Was that Sydney? Yeah, two nights at Sydney yeah, Opera yeah. House, and that was. Great, and, and you know, it was also after asking me if I would sing. Then there was also like, um, we need a promoter too. Like we haven't actually. Wow! Like, so it really was. So could you, you help right us at, with that? You were right at ground level for. Yeah. Wow. So I was like, okay, leave it with me. Uh, <laughs> and then you know, with the help of our manager, uh, we managed to get the dates at the opera house, and then it all came together. Wow. So that was that, and that was just two nights, and I just kind of thought, well, you know, that was amazing, you know, once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. Mm. And then a year later, they decided that, you know, they wanted to do it again. Um, It was the following January, again, a year later, the anniversary of his death, and they decided to go out again and do some shows in Europe in places that they hadn't played. Mm. And um, I... You know, I got the call again, like, do you want to come and tour Europe? So Amazing. Um, I did that and that was awesome. And now it's like, you know, this kind of occasional amazing thing. So uh, incredible. Because you're going to South America next. next yeah, so in about six weeks we go to Iceland. Oh, wow. Um, and we do a couple of shows there. And then not like a week later we go to South America for a couple of weeks amazing um so yeah it's like um it's like i have my normal life and you know with something for kate and doing my usual stuff with you know that i'm which is my priority um and then like once or twice a year i get to go to space camp and like, be an <laughs> astronaut and you know do this really fun awesome thing what songs do you do uh, rock and Roll Suicide, Golden Years, uh, Man Who Sold the World, Aladdin Sane, Let's Dance, Five <laughs> Years. I've done Suffragette City. Yeah. But I also like the cool thing is um, in Sydney, I, I just, you know, came on and sang my songs and, you know, went off again. But when we went to Europe, it was like 
we had time to rehearse and, and actually mm. get it together. So now it's like I actually I play guitar and wow. I play keyboards and, and heaps of stuff. So I'm, I'm actually on stage the whole time with the band. That's so amazing. Not only do I get to sing the songs, but when I'm not singing, I'm like playing guitar with Adrian Ballou. And, amazing. You know, like, oh, my God. It's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, all right, next song. Oh, okay. So I guess, yeah, let's do Death. Um, so this so Death. And then uh... the band is Death. The song is Flattening of Emotions. Uh, it's off their album Human, which I think came out in '90 or '91. Okay. death metal band really you know and i've 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 read that death metal you know gets its name from the band called death so where are they from they're from florida okay um where a lot of yeah (laughs) i don't know why why that made me giggle straight away but for some reason i've just got this Uh, connection between florida and like yeah yeah. there's a there's a some sort of You know, there's there's some sort of portal. Yeah. To, to, to <laughs> Maybe, hell. You know what I think? Sometimes it's the humidity. I think. Yeah. I think well, just the heat and the humidity. It's like it's why I've always found people from Queensland weird. But anyway. Yeah, and also <laughs> pro- probably like the high number of like evangelical churches and stuff yes, in Florida as well. That's and, true. Yeah. Um, it might be some reactionary thing, but um, <laughs> yeah. So death. Um, from Florida, um, and they basically the, the band had a revolving lineup throughout their time, but it all kind of centered around uh, the guy Chuck Schuldiner, the singer guitarist, and like I already said, you know they 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 they're sort of credited with almost inventing that sound, mm. but he also he just got more and more technical and and mm. weird as time went on. He was like a prog mm. death metal kind of guy. But, you know, the songs as well were, you know, they weren't about typical, like, you know, there's nothing, like, no, like, kind of satanic nonsense, yes. you know. Yeah. He actually kind of wrote, you know, there were ideas in yeah, the songs right. as well um, that sort of appealed to me. And they just had a sound that, you know, to me just blew my mind. And, yeah. you know, I, I love that album Human when it came out and it's just one that I keep going back to. And yeah. I still occasionally, it's like a, I described it to someone once as like um, eating a handful of wasabi. <laughs> you know, like you, you're constantly making music and different kinds of music and thinking about music and playing different instruments and yada, yada, yada. You get your yeah. head really into all these things. And then yeah. sometimes it's, I just put Need on to blow the cob- blow away the cobwebs a bit. Yeah, it's like someone taking a high-pressure spray gun yeah. to my frontal lobes. I like that. Yeah. It's, I love it. And I, you know... 
I can like air drum along and mm. it's just so intense and extreme and but like amazing in this like mathematical yeah, way yeah. um it's i kind of i don't know i see like geometry in it you yeah know? it's so uh every single note and every single and i think you know from what i can gather chuck shuldner was that kind of guy yeah. he was just insanely meticulous about everything he did yeah, yeah. um even down to like the selection of people who played in the band at different times and so yeah i don't know they're a really interesting band and i really think they're someone needs to make a documentary yeah about them because uh, chuck shuldner died um yeah, i was gonna say young. like what's the life like when did the band cease i i'm guessing i think it was around about 2000 uh chuck right. shuldner died of a brain tumor okay um so that was obviously the the end of them but um how many records he, did they make do you know nine well, okay maybe i think but you know they're just such an yeah like chuck's story himself is is a really interesting one and, and his sort of tragic passing at an at an early age um but also like you know just the different people who came in and out of the band um and like two two of the former members you know um i think a couple of years ago uh came out uh, as being you know uh, op- you know openly gay yeah right. in that community i think yeah, is, yeah. is interesting as yeah. well like you know it's um yeah i don't know there's just a lot of interesting things about that band and, and they were amazing um yeah yeah i think there's I, someone should make that doco maybe it should be you paul <laughs> maybe you'd have, have to, to go spend to too much time in florida, florida. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right one more uh okay what your last oh buchan gaze no i've okay. never heard of buchan gaze oh buchan gaze uh one of my favorites um and oh, and the song, song is uh, called Houdini Crush. Basically, uh, means bass ukulele. Oh, okay. And the gaze is a guitar that's been modified to have a couple of bass strings right. on it. So you've got okay. a bass uke and a guitar bass. I see. Gaze. Yeah. They're from Brooklyn. Um, I've discovered them when I was living over there. And um, So when would this song have been released? This is Houdini Crushes off their second album, which is probably four or five years old now. Okay. Um, they've just made two full-length albums, um, but so they 
okay, so the bass uke sounds nothing like a what I what a bass ukulele because she puts it through so many pedals. Right. It sounds like this monstrous bizarro instrument. Yeah, she's putting it through pitch shifters and distortion pedals, and so. It's amazing, and just mm. her playing is just incredible. Yeah. Um, and the and the again the the bass, the guitar bass is, he is playing stuff that you know there's bass in there, but there's guitar chords in there, and he's also putting it through some amazing sounding yeah. stuff. And they sit down while they're playing, and both of them with their feet, are hitting. Uh, one of them's got a kick drum, uh, okay, and the other one's got like a a tambourine. Yeah, so the only kind of Percussion is just a kick in a tambourine. Yeah. But it sounds like when you listen to them, they sound like this massive, like they sound like shellac yeah, or something, yeah, like yeah. this huge, pounding, intense rock and roll machine. So but did you see them live? Did you yeah, see, I did. Yeah. I saw them um, at the Mercury Lounge in New York one time, and it was hilarious because they were relatively new. They were just putting out their first album, and Mercury Lounge is, you know, like a two, three hundred capacity place in in uh, manhattan and and uh you know like lou reed uh and laurie anderson were there uh, <laughs> david byrne was there first and more was there wow. it was like you know they yeah. Were. but uh yeah they're amazing and both their albums are just incredible and like i said for two people to create the music and the, just the amount of sound that they mm. create is, is phenomenal and mm. it's so just so incredibly inventive um it's the forms and the structures and the melodies are just like nothing else mm. um I, just they're completely unique paul dempsey thank you very much for uh giving me your time today um what stuff have you got coming up is there anything well we're working on a new something for kate record yeah right and now, are you so... sort of do you work in here to like put together yeah we get together and... usually once a week yeah and we kind of hash things out uh in a rehearsal space and then I kind of bring those ideas back here and okay. turn them into demos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm kind of deep in demo land at the moment. Yeah, we'll be making a new album really soon. Cool. Um, and then you know, lots of touring and lots yeah. of shows. Yeah. Um, and then other things, you know, Bowie things, and you know, I I do the occasional producing thing yeah. for other bands and. So I don't know. I, I keep myself busy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Paul. No worries. Thanks, mate. <laughs>